heard many people talk about how, you know, everything is in God's timing. It's in God's plan. God is in control. I never really grasped exactly what that meant for me. Um, I had had minor inconveniences happen, and I always got angry and frustrated and just mad with God, and I asked him why. Why wouldn't you allow this to happen? I would just be discouraged. Recently, when I was dealing with some custody things with my children, they would get pushed back and delayed, and I started to get upset. And I realized that I need to allow God to be the one in full control. I had to let go of those reins and fully put that situation in God's hands. And I learned that nothing is ever in our timing. Everything is always in God's time. And we just need to learn to trust him and the plan that he has for us. I'm probably going to get yelled at for setting my coffee cup on that keyboard. Sorry. I just realized that. It's like the most expensive coffee cup stand ever. So, <laughs> Hey, good to see everybody. I want to welcome the others, those of you that are joining us online or out in the atrium or perhaps out on the patio. It's a beautiful day today here in northern Colorado. Uh, if you're not here in northern Colorado and you're tuning in and part of the kind of global network, just type in where you are. That would be wonderful. And if you're here in northern Colorado, especially if you're here in the room, um, I'd love to say hi, chat. Uh, find out a bit about you, especially if you're a guest this morning. I'll be right up front. would love to chat. My name is Ryan, and I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. I love our church. I absolutely love you. I do. And the reason why I love you is because you are creating an amazing space for people uh, to come and explore this idea of faith without feeling pressure for indoctrination, to be something that we're not, to just live and move and have our being in this great mystery of God. And so that's awesome, and you should be very proud of yourself. So thank you to everybody. And I want to say a special thank you this morning. And he probably doesn't want me to, and I don't, he, probably, he just stepped away. So, oh, no, he's still there. Uh, can we just give a huge, big thank you, round of applause to Saul Ramiro at the soundboard today? All right? So... There's people volunteering everywhere. We're talking about volunteering at family ministries, and so many people uh, really make huge sacrifices to volunteer. Some people don't make any sacrifice to volunteer. It's just easy to do. That's wonderful. But I don't know if you know it. Saul works, and he's in, uh, he works over at the hospital, and he does an overnight shift and comes here right from work on Sundays that he's on the soundboard. That's pretty insane. Like he hasn't, He's been working, and then he comes here and gets yelled at and told to turn it up and turn it down. And then there's feedback, and everybody blames him, and uh, he just does a great job. So we're grateful for you, Saul. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, for those of you that aren't volunteering, why not? Why not? So, no, that's good. Saul reminds us that none of us have a really good excuse, right? That's the truth of it. So, um, But it's good to be together. Hey, so we're in this series, Campfire Stories, and we've been hearing these stories. And by the way, next week, if I'm not mistaken we're going to hear um, a bit of size campfire story, and it's a good one, so you're not going to want to miss that. Make sure you tune in or show up. The water's fine here in the building. Plenty of room to keep your social distance game on if you want to, all right? Um, but we're in this series. We're hearing and listening to these stories that we have. Today, we heard a little bit of Kimberly's story, and part of her story, beginning in faith, was hearing this idea that God is in control, God's timing, right? And that became kind of an important part of her story. Maybe you share a similar, you know, part of your story. Who knows? But here's the truth of it. We all love a good story, 
But really, we all love a good origin story. Now, if you're a fill-in-the-blanks kind of person, you just automatically got a lot of hope because you got the first fill-in within the first four minutes, right? You're feeling good about today. You're like, I might make it home for lunch and not dinner today, right? I know what you're thinking. I know. Listen, we all love a good origin story, right? Uh, if you're into superheroes and the comic book world, right, the origin story is kind of the backstory, the events that made the hero the hero or the villain the villain, right? You know, you have an origin story, right? You have, or have you ever been asked the question, maybe you uh, are married or you've got a partner or you are, are in a relationship and somebody says, how did you meet, right? That's your origin story. And some of us have great origin stories, like, and some of us, it's just boring, right? You know, well, we went to school together or whatever it might be. Some of us, we were like on the same cliff and we had both fallen over and we were hanging there and we lifted each other up and all of a sudden this eagle came by and helped us. It was amazing and we knew it was meant to be. The gods were with us, right? No, that, that's not, no, just Wendy and I. That's how me went. It was pretty epic. It was pretty epic, you know? Listen, uh, so in the comic book world, it's what makes the hero the hero, the villain the villain. In anthropology, right, the study of humankind, the study of humanity and cultures, right, uh, origin stories are important, right? Uh, they tell stories that an anthropologist would say the, the origin stories of a culture, they bring meaning to that culture, right? They, they explain how the universe began, how the universe works within the orientation of a culture that people exist in, Right? Some origin stories, culturally speaking, are based on real people and real events. Maybe loosely, but they're based on them. Some origin stories are more imaginative, right? A lot of times it depends on where the origin story came from, where we were in the history of humanity, the evolution of our species, right? Like that's going to play a lot of factors in this idea of what the origin story is like and how close it might find itself in history versus this really naughty word they're not supposed to say in church, myth. But I don't say that in a pejorative way. I say that in the myths make meaning, right? They make meaning of the world. We don't have to be afraid of that. You can follow Jesus and use the word myth. So everybody take a nice deep breath. If you were getting ready to send me an email, don't, all right? It's okay, all right? It's okay. It's a part of, in fact, if we can't believe in myth, if we can't embrace myth, we miss a huge part of who we are as human beings, right? The whole part of our brain that functions in symbols and allegory and poetry, right? We miss all of that, right? And so these origin stories are powerful. They oftentimes contain amazing emotional symbols that just convey profound truths. But oftentimes they're not in a literal sense. They might be, right? Our origin stories, they tend to fall, anthropologists tell us, into like one of three categories, right? Even if you just think about the origin of your profession, think about the origin of your family, the origin of a significant relationship, there's kind of like three categories that our origin stories come out of. One is trauma, right? Think Batman. Think Bruce Wayne. Y'all know Batman, Bruce Wayne? Anybody know Bruce Wayne? I've never met him personally, but, you know, I feel like we're, Bruce and I would get along, you know? But his story is one of trauma, right? If you've ever seen the movies or read the comic books, it's, he emerges out of the pain of the murdering of his parents, right? And that kind of sets him on his hero's journey, right? So in your life, right, there might be a, a, a space where you think about your faith or you think about your relationship, and maybe there's trauma in the background, like that was what said it. There was a, a big loss, a hardship of some sort. Maybe you met your spouse, your significant other. In the middle, both of you were in a difficult moment in life, and you kind of came together. And so that's a part of your origin story. 
could be financial hardship, all kinds of things, right? Second category that origin stories fall into is this idea of destiny. You're just destined for it, right? I don't know, like maybe what you do for a profession in life, right? Maybe you're a professional parent. That's a good profession, wonderful profession. Maybe you are a professional bad parent, right? That's okay too. Everybody's trying. Don't worry about it, right? Maybe you have a profession in another arena, right? And you can think, well, what is that, right? Maybe you just sense, like, I just was always made for this. Like, you just knew it. Like, weird thing about my story of, like, going into this crazy profession of pastoring is, like, from the time I was four years old, I was just enamored by the church. I loved it. I loved being there. I loved hearing the stories. I loved the idea of exploring God. Like, I was that weird kid in, like, seventh grade. I started taking Latin because I knew I was going to have to take Greek. So, like, by the time I was a, a high school senior, like, I was translating the Gospels from the Latin Vulgate, right? Lots of dates for this guy. <laughs> Lots of dates, as you can imagine, as you can imagine, right? So, like, sometimes there's just this sense, right, that a normal person is just kind of suddenly put into an abnormal world or a situation. The destiny. So think Luke Skywalker if you're a Star Wars fan, right? Kind of just this normal kid living out on Tatooine and then one day just thrust into this thing that he is destined for. Or if you're Wonder Woman fans, any Wonder Woman fans in the room? Come on now, Wonder Woman. She's just doing her thing and then she's thrust into this reality, right? To become a rescuer, right? So that's the idea within like superhero world, but in like the normal life, our life just kind of seems to point us in one direction, right? We've kind of carried a, a dream with us since childhood. Third category that anthropologists say our origin stories fit into is this idea of chance, right? It was a chance encounter. A lot of times, like our origin stories with our relationships, kind of our closest friendships, a spouse, a significant other, they fit into this category, right? Just random events that just seem to take over and snowball and get bigger and bigger and bigger. In the superhero world, think Peter Parker, right? Spider-Man. He just happens to be at the right place at the wrong time. And the spider falls on him, bites him, right? Doesn't do anything. He could have been sick that day, not gone to school, but he happens to be there. He's on the field trip. He could have been looking someplace else, right? It just happens to him, right? So there was just this day, right? Origin story starts like, there's just a normal day like any other day, right? And our origin stories are powerful because they form us personally and culturally, right? They give us an identity and they're important and they're necessary, and origin stories, they provide kind of like those moments, even if you think about a relationship you're in with a person, like they provide a moment of stability where you like look back with nostalgia, right? I mean, Wendy and I oftentimes share like how we met and every time we talk about it, like it feels like I exaggerate more and more, right? <laughs> I exaggerate more and more how desperate she was to meet me. The story shifts and changes a little bit, right? But we can go back to those moments, right? That's powerful. So it provides this beautiful sense of identity personally and culturally. So we as a culture also have our origin stories, and they provide us with a sense of corporate identity. They unite us. And, and as you, you hear me talk oftentimes about these three domes of existence that we live in, we live in my story, we live in our stories, and then we live in the story, Right? Origin is powerful because it helps us kind of have a healthy sense of me and we. So I have a healthy sense of who I am based upon like my origin story. The pro I'm a product of my upbringing. I'm a product of the religious structures I was raised or not raised in. I was a product of the movies I saw or didn't see, the things that were happening in our culture at the time. But I also have like 
our story as a follower of Jesus, what that looks like and how that's been you know, an evolving process in my own life. But I have a sense of that identity and that story that I'm a part of. I'm a part of the American story, right? For all the good that that might be and all the challenging parts that we all have in our cultures and every culture around the world, like that's, that's a part of it. And so we get that good, healthy sense of me and we. It's important. And these stories provide hope for us when we're feeling in, in fear, let's say. Maybe the relationship is a struggle. Maybe we're afraid of things that we're seeing happening in our culture, right? But our origin stories can bring us back and say, no, we can continue to make this place better, right? We continue to make this relationship better. They give us these anchors in our lives. They're super powerful, but here's the tension, right? Here's the thing with origin stories, especially in a culture, right? Cultural origin stories easily, easily in our minds become the story, instead of one of our stories. And so we easily look at the origin stories of our culture or our faith, and we say, this is the way it has to be, rather than understanding them for what they are, providing a sense of groundedness, right, on a rock that is spinning in the middle of the universe. <laughs> and it's beautiful and wonderful, but we'll, we'll oftentimes tend to, especially this happens within the Christian faith, is we will look down on origin stories of other cultures, and so we have to, as we talk today about this campfire story, which is an origin story, it's a big one, we should hold that tension carefully, that this story is beautiful and wonderful and complex and gives us all of those things, but it is part of our story. I don't think we have to understand it as the story. And we can have hope in it and we can learn from it and we can apply it, but if it becomes the story, violence will in fact ensue, and we've seen that happen right? So as we look at this, right, we're going to look at this big, huge, massive story of the Exodus, right? The Exodus. Now, whole book of the Bible called Exodus, and we're going to get through it today. We're going to start at chapter one. I think there's about 36 chapters, about five different sources that went into this writing of this book over the course of, say, 300 years. We should be able to tackle most of the textual problems in the first three hours, and then we'll jump right into other historical criticism, all that stuff, and then we'll get to the point maybe tomorrow morning, right? Okay, so we're going to like not even scratch the surface today, all right? I mean, lots of ink has been spilt over the Exodus story. But the Exodus story is an origin story for the people of Israel. And by right of like the evolution of our own faith as followers of Jesus, it's a part of our story. And so we want to ask the question, what wisdom does the Exodus story offer us? How do we think about it in light of Jesus? How do we think about it in our own lives, right? Now, this is all I'm going to say about the background to the book of Exodus and the story of the Exodus it is complex. You do not want me to start, because it is, it is a mess. It is an absolute mess trying to, because a lot of us will ask this question, and it's okay. Raise your hand up nice and high if you would ever ask this question. Did it really happen? If you're familiar with the Exodus story, you know, the frogs coming out of everywhere, right? The, the seas turning into blood, right? If you're like me, you ask automatically, like, did it really happen, Right? So that's a question that has scholarship in all different directions. Most scholarship would say there is a historical background and basis to this origin story, 
right? But there's not a lot of archaeological evidence. There's not a lot of evidence outside of what we have in the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. We don't have much of an Egyptian record of a mass exodus of people, of violence, things like that. But we do have things that, like, historians try to put and piece it together. So I just want to say that it's okay if you're like me and you read this story and you're like, yeah, this is beautiful and it teaches us so much and it's wonderful, but I'm just not sure if I can buy all of it. That's okay. And if you're the type of person who's like, I buy it all, I'm in, They're wonderful, this is how it happened, great. What we're asking again always of these stories is what's their meaning for us? And there are some parts of the Exodus story that I do think it's important that we look and read through the lens of Jesus, but we'll get to that in a few hours, okay? So, <laughs> so this Jewish story starts really with oppression. This origin story is oppression. There's trauma involved. So the book of Genesis gives this beautiful creation story, which is quite unique to the ancient Near East, but there's some wonderful principles there. And throughout the story of Genesis, you have like God moving and responding and calling a person named Abraham. And Abraham has a child named Isaac, and Isaac has a bunch of kids, and they grow. And then you get this guy named Joseph. Joseph, like outside of Moses, Joseph, did you know this? The story of Joseph is the most prolific, longest narrative that we have in like the whole Hebrew Bible. We know more about this story of Joseph. Like the only person that there's more time spent on is Moses. Isn't that interesting? But that's a whole other eight-hour message, okay? So you have this story. And then what happens is Joseph becomes second in command to Pharaoh. He's in Egypt. He had been sold by his brothers. And then all of a sudden, a big famine hits the land. He saves, single-handedly saves the whole world. It's a good story, right? Absolutely. And what happens is the whole family of Joseph, they move just outside of Egypt is what it says. They kind of come in, they move, they find a home, and then they grow. And there's about 400 years of growth of this nation, right? And as they grow and they grow and they grow, the text says in Exodus chapter 1 that a Pharaoh came into power who did not know Joseph. It took about 400 years. That's how memorable he was. I hope I last 400 years. But I hope when I'm to 400 years, like, it takes 400 years. People are like, there arose a pastor at Crossroads that didn't know Ryan. <laughs> I think it'll take a lot shorter time, right? <laughs> so, so this is what happens, right? So, so there's this pharaoh that comes into power and looks around and says, hey, we're in trouble. Like there is a whole lot of these uh, Israelites around here and we got to figure out how to tame them because they're going to overtake us if our enemies come and they side with our enemies. So the Pharaoh enslaves the, Egypt, the, the Israelites and they build cities and they get working very harshly. And then in the midst of that context of oppression, of forced labor, of slavery, which by the way, historically speaking, there's lots of evidence that, um, that, that Egypt in this time in its history was a very, very slave-driven culture, right? There's, there's good reason why it was called the house of bondage is what the text says. But that's very historically accurate given this time period and what we've seen in texts that have been uncovered. So you have this massive oppression that's taking place. And in the midst of that oppression, a hero is born. And this hero is born with a destiny to lead. And perhaps you've seen the movie. Uh, maybe you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, or what's the Disney one? the Disney one with Mariah Carey? Prince of Egypt. Thank you. We need Wendy here, right? Prince of Egypt, right? <laughs> I was always stupid. I haven't read that. I'll wait for the movie. It's fine. So he emerges and is, he is miraculously saved, which is completely consistent with every hero story you're going to find in the ancient Near East. Moses is bored. He's saved. He ends up in the palace being raised. 
And one day he goes out and he sees the oppression of his people. He's moved and he actually interferes with uh, an Egyptian who is kind of harshly treating one of his fellow brothers and he murders the Egyptian and stands up and then he's afraid and he flees out into the wilderness and he spends a whole bunch of time in the wilderness. Again, a huge part of the hero's journey. You got to leave. You got to go through the wilderness so you can come back and rescue everybody. This is very typical for this type of narrative. And so he goes out and he marries a Midianite woman. His father-in-law is a priest of Midian. Lest you think that Moses had no complications with his own religious faith right? He's born an Israelite, and they don't even have the revelation yet, according to the text of Yahweh as God. So who knows exactly how that works? Probably a a pantheon of gods that they're working through. Then you've got all the Egyptian gods that he's raised with, and then he's out, and he's like, now his father-in-law, and if I'm Moses, I'm going with the father-in-law, right? I'm like, yeah, priest of Midian, cool, let's do this, right? So then he goes out into the woods, and you've heard this, right? He's out in the wilderness, and there's this fire, this burning a bush and it's not being consumed and he goes over and takes off his sandals and he hears this voice and he's called into this amazing, amazing journey of leadership because in that moment, the ancestral God of the Hebrews speaks up and says, it's time to take action. 400 years of oppression is just about right. <laughs> Talk about timing. <laughs> He says, I've seen and I've heard, it's finally come to me. And and God reveals God's self as this phrase, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And all of a sudden, this like journey begins and this creation of a nation starts to take place. And what we see happening between Moses and the Pharaoh is this timeless battle between good and evil, right? Moses is called to go with his brother-in-law, Aaron, and he's called to say, hey, like, let my people go. And the text actually says that, that God says, I will make you like a God to Pharaoh. And so it's important that you always read this, that you have the Egyptians who would hold Pharaoh as a deity, and now it's a competition between the two in this story. Whose God is the greatest? So we have the 10 plagues, right? The, the Nile, the source of life, turns to blood, right? That's creepy. I'm sorry. That is creepy. Then plague two, right, was frogs. And I'm going to tell you, out of all the plagues minus the last one, this one would bother me the most. I do not like frogs. Anybody in the room not like frogs? Can we pause for this for a moment? Because this is a true plague. There's something wrong, not right with frogs. Now listen, just bear with me for a second. This is important in your theology, okay? Because some of us don't think critically because we were just kind of raised in church and you're not supposed to think critically. But I'm going to break that habit, all right? Think about a frog. When you walk up to a frog, does that frog hop away? Nope. It doesn't. What does it do? It looks at you. It just looks right at you. Like you're not there, but it sees you. Now imagine, just imagine for a moment, some creature walks up to you ratioed out the same size you are to that frog. Are you going to stand there and look at it? No. You are going to run unless you know something they don't. I'm telling you, it's the next time you see a frog, just imagine this little tiny frog. You walk up to it, and it just stares at you like, I dare you. I you have no idea what will happen to you in the next life if you touch me. Like, that's what the frog is saying, right? So I don't like this plague of frogs at all, right? So you got the frogs that come. Then the, the dust turns into gnats. It's all on your teeth and everything. 
Then flies, as if the gnats weren't enough. Flies are coming. Now remember, the Egyptians are doing their own magic, right, during all of this. They're doing their thing. Moses is doing his thing. He's got this rod, right, that's the symbol of power. It's the symbol of authority. It's the symbol of this magic that's taking place. You have pestilence that go on the livestock. That's number five. This is a bad year. I mean, we thought we had it bad a year and a half ago. I'm going to tell you what. This is not a good year to be vacationing in Egypt, right? So you got pestilence that are killing all the livestock, all of it, it says, every one of them. But then you have boils on the skins of people and animals and livestock that didn't die from the pestilence, right? Then you have plague number seven that shows up, and it's hail. Come on, Estes Park. <laughs> what happened there at two feet of hail? Yeah, there must be some Egyptians up there, right? That's why you got to be careful with these stories, right? So hail comes, kills all the vegetation. So you're, you're left so far with every bit of livestock is contaminated and dead. Human beings are contaminated and dying everywhere. They're, the blood, the water had turned to blood. And now you've got hail that just wipes out everything else. And just in case there's anything left, there's locusts, number eight. Locusts come and eat up all the fruit trees that lasted and survived everything else. But still, after everything... After all of this stuff, Pharaoh will not relent. He always says, oh, no, no, I can't. No, no, I can't. And then the 10th plague comes, the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. God says, I'm going to come, and this will do it. This will let him go. And in and, and all of this, my power will be revealed. And so what happens is, that's exactly what happens in the story. God sends the death angel, goes through, kills every innocent firstborn child in the land of Egypt. And in this, the Passover story comes, and the Passover feast is established as law. It's part of the literature. Why do we do this? You could see a campfire, and you can see Israelites in antiquity sitting around going, why are we eating this bread without any yeast in it? Oh, let me tell you the story. And the story ends with this bloody, this bloody, bloody infanticide that, that portrays God more like Herod than Jesus. And we have to wrestle with that one. But the story establishes the Passover feast, which to this day is the, cent is the central action within Judaism, the central feast, where they're reminded of the power of God. And so Pharaoh says, go ahead and get out. Leave. Get out. Be gone with you. Go. Serve your God. Get out. And so they leave, and the text says that, that the, the Egyptians actually gave them money and jewelry and kind of gave them their wealth so that they could leave and get out. But if you're familiar with the story, as they're leaving, it says that they all gathered and they, they come to the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is this space where the final battle between good and evil is going to take place. And this is where I want to just jump into the text, in Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus chapter 14, this is all that has happened in this origin story of how did we become Israel? How did we get to this land? How, did we, how do we define ourselves as a people? And it all culminates with this moment in time. It says when the king of Egypt was told that the people had escaped, <laughs> the language shifts a little bit, they had escaped, 
right? Which again is part of the complexity of this literature because this story is about probably at least seven or eight different stories that have been brought together over the course of a hundred years. But we know that this story was powerful and a part of Israelite religion long before even the monarchy came into being. So it's been a part of their lives for a very long time, but it's been brought together and redacted and, and, and now it's in its final form, which is wonderful. But, it, but you can tell like, oh, they escaped or he left. I mean, it just shifts, right? So they escaped. And, and when he hears this, he and his officials, they change their mind. No, 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 no. What have we done? If we lose the Israelites, if we let them go, we've lost all of our labor. We've lost our slaves. So the king got his war chariot and his army ready. And he set out with all his chariots, including the 600 finest. And they commanded their officers. So you get the best of Egypt pursuing this ragtag group of poor, oppressed slaves. And so the Lord made the king stubborn, it says. Yahweh, the God, made the king stubborn. And he pursued the Israelites who were leaving triumphantly, celebrating over, look at what our God did. Look at all the death and devastation as they celebrate and they leave. Well, the Egyptian army says, nope, let's go. So grab all the horses and chariots and drivers. And they pursued them and they caught up with them. And they were encamped by the Red Sea where this happens. And when the Israelites saw the king and his army, they saw this taking place. They were terrified. And they cried out to Yahweh for help. They cried out to this God that had called them out of Egypt. And they went to Moses because Moses was this representation, was like a God even to them and said, wasn't there enough graves in Egypt? That's a good question right there. Weren't there any graves in Egypt? Did you bring us out here in the desert just to die? Look what you've done by bringing us out of Egypt. Didn't we tell you before, just leave us alone? This is what's going to happen. We said, leave us alone. Let us go on being slaves in, 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 of the Egyptians. Why are you doing this to us? It'd be better. It'd be better to be slaves there than to die here in the desert. How many of y'all know if you've been around this thing called faith, if you've been in a relationship, if you've been following Jesus, if you're trying to understand this great mystery of God, that it's pretty easy to forget the faithfulness and the power of God. It's a really interesting portion of this story, right? Like what they've just seen theoretically happen in the story, and they're a few days away from it. And it's like, what have you done? We're never going to like, you know, like I, if I was Moses, I'd have had like a grocery bag, and I just pulled out a frog. You remember the frog? But like some gnats, right? <laughs> some blood from the Nile, right? But they forgot all of it. It's, it's pretty fanciful to imagine forgetting all of that. But the, the, the story is trying to teach us, right? right? It's trying to call the nation to something. And so Moses answered, don't be afraid. Just stand your ground and you'll see what the Lord will do to save you today. You will never see the Egyptians again. The Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is keep still. Such a beautiful passage of scripture. The Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is keep still. You know, it's easy to try and fight our own battles. It's easy to make enemies out of people. It's easy to, but you know what? This is so beautiful. You just keep still. I, I love, uh, Brene Brown talks about just holding your sacred ground. You're in a situation that's tough and you're feeling like you're being taken advantage of, you're feeling attacked. Brene Brown and all of her research said that, you know, people that are engaged in life, they're living their fullest life. They just know how to just kind of stand your sacred ground. I don't need to attack. I don't need to scream. I don't need to just Stand my sacred ground. It's such a beautiful principle. But it's super easy to just get into our own strength, to get into our own wit, to get into our own idea. And so the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out for help? <laughs> I love it. He's like, just tell the people to move forward. What are you waiting on? 
Go, move forward. He says, lift up your walking stick. Lift up the magic stick. Hold it over your head. Hold it over the sea. The water is going to divide, and the Israelites will be able to walk through the sea on dry ground. <laughs> I wonder if Moses was like, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I always imagine like God saying in like the most sarcastic tone, like, just lift up the stick. You've had that thing for like six months. Lift up the stick. What, is, what are you coming to me for? I've equipped you. I've told you everything you need. What are you praying about this for? It's like volunteering. What are you praying about? Just figure out where, right? I snuck that one in. I just snuck it right in. I mean, that's 25 years of experience right there. I just sneaked that one in. Moses is like, okay, right? And then God says, I will make the Egyptians so stubborn that they'll go after you. But I'll gain honor by my victory over the king and his army and his chariots and his drivers. When I defeat them, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. I'm like, I think the Egyptians already know, right? Like, there's a side of me that's like these poor Egyptian soldiers are just being told what to do. Like, I imagine, they're like, I don't want to do it. I mean, if you think about this story, they've already lost one child, all these soldiers. I mean, when we really start critically examining the story, there's just some things that you go, hold on a second. But that's the point of the story is it to give us this history, right? It's to galvanize a nation, probably a nation that's in exile. And so the angel of God, who had been in front, moved and went back to the rear of the army of Israel, of the people. And the pillar of cloud that had been guiding them also moved in between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And the cloud made it dark for the Egyptians, but gave light to the people of Israel. And so the armies could not come near each other all night. You know, a lot of historians think that this refers to a pretty famous eruption of a volcano that took place that created a massive cloud that would have separated people. And so like, there's this referential idea to this historical moment. It's kind of fascinating, though. Just thought I'd throw that out there, right? So Moses held out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind. It, now, this is cool. It blew all night, and it turned the sea into dry land. The water was divided, and the Israelites went through the sea and dry ground with walls of water on both sides. So it didn't happen like it did in the movie, like raise it. It was all night process. I mean, God had some irrigation to deal with, you know? It took a little time. So it separates, right? But it says the Egyptians pursued them, and went after them into the sea with all their horses and chariots and drivers. Now remember this from this story. Evil will persist. Evil will persist. Pain will persist. Greed will persist. Oppression will persist. Text goes on and says, Just before dawn, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and clouded the Egyptian army and threw them into a panic. And he made the wheels of the chariots get stuck, so they moved with great difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Yahweh is fighting for the Israelites against us. Let's get out of here. Israel's God is actually doing better than our God. Time to get out of here. But Yahweh says to Moses, hold out your hand over the sea, and the water will come back over the Egyptians and their chariots and drivers. And so Moses held out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the water returned to its normal level. And the Egyptians tried to escape from the water, but the Lord, but Yahweh, threw them into the sea. It's a sad, scary like, picture when we think about it from an enlightenment faith, that you have an army retreating, and you have a God that says, nope, too late, time to kill you. It's in the story. We should honor that reality. So it says the water drew and covered the chariots and the drivers and all the Egyptian army that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them was left. But the Israelites, they walked through the sea on dry ground with walls of water on both sides. And on that day, Yahweh saved the people of Israel from the Egyptians and the Israelites saw them lying dead on the seashore. 
I'll be honest with you, I like that there's not a whole lot of historical data that this actually ever happened. <laughs> because this is a gruesome understanding of God. But it makes sense from when it comes and the culture and the realities of life in the ancient Near East. You would not think about God or gods in any other way. This was how you established the dominance of your God. This is a part of that culture and that history and that reality and that making sense of the world and making meaning of your culture. It is the normalcy of civilization to think about violence as the answer. And so when the Israelites saw it, it says, with the great power which the Lord had defeated the Egyptians, they stood in awe and they had faith in the Lord and his servant Moses. The only way that you will establish the ability to follow and trust in a God in antiquity in this time period was through military victory. And so if you're sitting, think about it, if you're sitting in exile and you're wondering, is there any future hope for your nation that's now scattered and splintered, this story becomes vitally important because it says our God is able to bring us back together because it's your origin story. And so in the middle of it all, in the complexity of it and in the truth of a violent representation of God, we remember where this comes from and we recognize that it's the origin story. The point of the origin story was to help Israel learn to trust and remember the power and faithfulness of their God. Like, that's it. That's the power of the origin story. And this origin story is consistent with the normalcy of civilization, especially in the ancient Near Eastern concepts of the divine. There would be no way to think about and establish that authority in a culture without a story like this. But here's the thing. If we're not careful, it will create a distorted view of God as tribal, only caring about Israel. Who cares about those little innocent babies in Egypt? That's just that God, if God does it, it's just. I just don't buy that. It is just part of the normalcy of something. It's, it's where humanity describes and, and creates God in our image. And the story is beautiful in a sense. It's wonderful and our heart resonates because we think we're the Israelites. But it presents a distorted view, as consistent as it was. And so as we ask the question, how do we take a story like this into our postmodern world? How do we take a story like this where I feel like as human beings, as humanity, we've evolved and we understand the futility of violence? You know what's beautiful about it is that Jesus offers a corrective and counter-origin story. The whole role of Jesus is to be corrective in the way in which we experience and understand and think about God. See, there's a, there's a version of the gospel that says, Jesus came to change God's disposition towards humanity. One of judgment, one of anger, that without Jesus, you can't be in God's presence. We're so evil. But there's also an understanding of the gospel that says, no, Jesus came to change humanity's perspective of God, to turn our hearts to the one who's always had a heart turned towards us. And so Jesus, the story of Jesus, teaches us the same thing, that we can trust we can remember the power and faithfulness of God, but not power as we want it to be or as we envision in the normalcy of civilization of violence and retributive justice, but the power of love and forgiveness and honoring and including. And he says, this is who God is. 
And while these stories are wonderful and we look back at them, we should hold to the reality that they are a distortion of the divine. And what's beautiful is that it's part of our sacred text to help us remember, be careful. Be careful with your origin story. And so let me ask you this question real quick. What's your origin story of your faith journey? How did it begin? The Exodus is the origin story of the nation of Israel. It galvanized, it brought the people together, a people who were oppressed consistently and are still consistently oppressed. It's a powerful, beautiful, absolutely necessary narrative, and we shouldn't ever think that we can't take that away or we can't celebrate what the story is teaching us. But you should think about your own spiritual journey. Where did it all begin? Where did you first learn that God was pursuing you? Not where did you turn, to where, but when did you start to have that aha moment that there is divine presence that's actually pursuing me? And what's your spiritual autobiography? A spiritual autobiography is a really fascinating, fascinating process that I would encourage you to write out on your own. And it's to sit and, and say, where do I look in my seasons of life as a child, as an adolescent, as a young adult, as, a, as an adult, as a middle-aged adult, as an adult in my senior years, like where do I see the quote-unquote hand of the divine? Where do I recognize God was present in those moments with me? Because those are moments we can go back to when we have the moments where we feel that there is no divine presence. I think about my own upbringing, my own life, and kind of a Pentecostal charismatic tradition. And while I look back at some of that stuff and I go, what in the world was wrong with those people? <laughs> I don't think I would trade it because it taught me a great sense of the, the intimacy that we can have with God. And I have no idea if my experiences were manufactured by manipulative environments or whatever, but I think my experiences were real and genuine and important in shaping of me. There are experiences I wouldn't go back to. I wouldn't want people to have necessarily but they're part of my story. And I think God was present in the midst of it, just putting up with it <laughs> and guiding me and redeeming those things. And so it's a, it's a beautiful exercise to say, what, where are those moments in my life? It's different than the traditional way our, our heritage kind of tells us to tell our spiritual stories. Like, tell us about your life before Jesus. Tell us about your life after you accepted Jesus and, or how you accepted Jesus. And then tell us about you know, what your life is like now. And that's a very dualistic understanding and very me-centered way of seeing it. It assumes that God was never present working in my life until I was able to say, Jesus, come into my heart. And so a spiritual autobiography says, no, 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 I just, I'm reflecting and I'm looking and it takes time, but I would encourage you to do it. If you're in a group here at Crossroads, I'd encourage you this fall or, or this summer, like make that an exercise in your group. Like have everybody take a turn and share their spiritual autobiography and just listen just listen. Listen for themes. Listen. And then as we read this story, we should look for the universal themes of the Exodus, those themes that transcend culture, right? Because we can still all find ourselves in this story. Perhaps we find ourselves as the participating empire, right? Perhaps we're the ones oppression. Perhaps that's part of the reality. Perhaps we're hard-hearted, towards the work of God in Christ. Perhaps we actually are hard-hearted towards this idea that love can change the world, that forgiveness and mercy is the way of God. We want to talk about the way, the truth, and the life. That seems to me the path that leads to the Father, love, forgiveness, grace, inclusion, the way of Jesus. You're not going to get it any other way. It's not going to be through religion. That's what Jesus was saying to his people. 
The father's not found behind some temple veil following the religious rituals. The father is found in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's what the earliest writers wanted us to know, right? So when Jesus makes this claim that I'm the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the father except through me, what Jesus is saying, he's, first of all, he's talking to his people, and he's saying all these ways that you think you're pleasing God, you're missing it. If you want to experience the divine right now, love people, forgive people, include people, humble yourself. That's the gate that opens up the presence of God in our lives. The other one can kind of feel really good <laughs> to be the insiders, but I don't think that's what Jesus was saying as the witness of his life is. Maybe you're in a space of fear standing at the edge of a Red Sea, and you know that you've had that divine presence. You know you've experienced Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, but it's just in this moment, it's like, I don't, I don't have the courage or the faith to believe or trust, right? You're in that moment. That's, you're there. Maybe you're the rod, the staff. I like to think of that. Like, I want to be the church that's the staff, that produces the miracles in this world, that feeds the hungry, that heals the sick, that says everybody can find grace and healing and community, right? I, I love that image of the, I want to be this, the, that staff in the hand of the divine presence, raised over problems in our culture, in our world, that says love will conquer all, right? That's the, that's the thing. And I want to encourage you to look for hints as you read the Exodus story. I would encourage you this week to read the Exodus story. And as you do it, look for hints of the universal Christ. Look for hints of this idea that there is this universal logos, this word of God that has been preeminent and in existence for all of time, even before time. It's the wisdom of God. Richard Rohr in his book, The Universal Christ, How a Forgotten Reality Can Change Everything We See, Hope For, and Believe, he said this, a mature Christian sees Christ in everything and everyone else. That is the definition that will never fail you, always demand more of you, and give you no reason to fight, exclude, or reject anyone. And so as you read this story, look for the divine presence. You'll see that the divine presence is concerned with marginalized and oppressed people, that's beautiful. You can see that the divine presence is calling the rich to care for the poor. You can see that the divine presence is using human beings to bring social change, right? Leaders to be raised up. These are all foreshadowing the radical revelation of God in Christ Jesus. And what happens is we find our origin story and we look at Exodus in a healthy way and we understand our own origin stories. Those origin stories bring hope and light into the darkness and discouragement of our everyday normal lives. And so today, what is true of me is this, take it or leave it, I don't pray to or see the God of the Exodus story fully in Jesus. I just don't see that. I see Jesus as a correction to some of the elements of that story, but I see shadows and hints of Jesus, and I see amazing movement that takes place through the Exodus story in the minds and hearts of ancient people. But, but I don't see God fully. That's the reality of it. There's, there's this dimness to it. And I think it gets better and better and better with Jesus and with the spirit of Jesus. And so I see a divine presence in this story that's concerned for the oppressed and marginalized, and that's beautiful. That's the hint. That's the, that's the two steps forward. The one step back is, hey, I killed all the babies. Yeah! Like, eh, not so much. I just can't see Jesus doing that. Right? I mean, the Jesus story is Herod doing that, the villain. It's all part of this like, whole big story that I think Scripture is bringing us to in Jesus. So as we wrap up today, there's some things on the back of your Connect card. Go ahead and pull that Connect card out for me. 
I want you to have a few minutes to fill that out. There's some next steps you might want to take. Be encouraged in. Read the book of Exodus. Maybe consider your own spiritual origin story. Journal a little bit about how God has been present throughout your life. Maybe you feel like this is the moment where you're beginning your spiritual origin story, and you want to talk to somebody about it. You want to talk to a pastor about that. That's awesome. Just check that box, and somebody will reach out, and you can sit down and say, this is where I think I'm at. That's wonderful. So as you're finished and filling out your Connect card, you can get your donation ready, your offering ready, whatever word you like to use for it, whatever you call it, I'm grateful for it. Thank you for your generosity to keep our church moving forward in these days. And uh, as, they, as the band kind of reprises this song we did earlier, uh, our, our room hosts will be through the room. They'll pick up the baskets and receive the connect cards and the offering. But this song, one of the lyrics is that, like, God made me a promise, right? God made me a promise, and I'm not going to stop now. Like, you might be in that space of the Red Sea. You just need to be encouraged. That metaphor is beautiful, powerful, that the seas can part. The seas can part. And my heart is that I would be one who parts the sea. Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me, lives in you. So why can't we part the sea together? Why can't we recognize this origin story is powerful and beautiful and wonderful for us and it helps us understand, but it does not negate, it does not demean or demoralize other origin stories that help people understand the universe. We can honor those traditions. We can learn from them. And you know why we can do that? It's because we can actually say some of our origin stories are a little jacked up right? And if we can do that, we can honor the origin stories of other religions and cultures and learn truth and say there's truth from ours too, but we're always open to what the Spirit is doing. All right, I'll be back in just a moment with our blessing for the week. Take a nice deep breath. The week ahead, I want to encourage you Be that staff in the hand of God. Part the seas for people around you. A smile can do it. An encouraging word can do it. A cup of coffee can do it. Take some time to reflect on your own spiritual journey. So I got a blessing for you this morning. If you do me a favor, if you're willing to, just open up your arms as a symbol that your heart is open to receive what God has for you, that works for you, through you, and you in this world this week. So this week, may God bless you with a peace that can come only from times of reflection. May you make the time to sit and reflect. Reflect on your life of faith, your spiritual journey, your exploration of life with the divine. And may you see this beautiful hand of love painting a beautiful picture through your story. And while your story might be filled with pain or sorrow, some doubt, and a bit of regret. May you see the parts of your story that are also full of healing and joy and confidence and vision. And this week, may each one of us find ourselves sitting with a friend, sharing a cup of coffee, a pint of beer, a glass of tea, or a sip of whiskey. And in that moment, may you experience the power of one simple spoken sentence. Would you please tell me your story? I would love to hear all about your life's journey. Amen. Have an amazing week, everyone.